Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas-Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me today as we talk about Jonah and Micah. And these are short books, a very familiar story here, so probably won't take too much time today, but appreciate your tuning in. And thanks again to all those who have subscribed on Patreon to support this podcast. Let's talk about Jonah. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, Jonah is swallowed by a big fish, a great fish. In the New Testament, Christ, who refers to Jonah three times in the New Testament, talks about a whale. And there is a pretty significant difference in that a fish is cold-blooded, doesn't require air to breathe, and something inside of a fish would probably not have had sufficient air or oxygen to breathe and survive. But a whale that is a mammal and requires air to survive could have had enough air inside for a human to survive. So let's go with the New Testament verification of Christ that Jonah is swallowed by a whale rather than a fish. In February of 1891, there was actually a documented occasion where an English whaling ship, the Star of the East, was whaling near the Falkland Islands, going after a sperm whale, which those were about 60 to 70 feet long. It's the kind of whale that they talk about in Moby Dick, those huge whales. A seaman, James Bartley, was a, described as a youngish and very tough and hardy whaleman. And two boats were sent off the ship to go try to harpoon the whale. And the second boat was capsized when the whale dove and the flukes of the tail hit the boat. One body was recovered of the two men that were in the second boat, and he had died. The second guy disappeared, and they thought he had also been lost. But the first boat was able to continue to pursue the whale and caught it, killed it. It was tied alongside the boat as they did then, and they went to work to basically, you know, cut up the whale for its valuable parts. And that job continued throughout that day into the night and the next day. And the second day, the stomach was hauled up on the deck, and the men who were doing the work saw this kind of spasmodic twitching and thought that a shark must be inside the whale's stomach. Apparently that had happened from time to time. The latest thing that this whale had swallowed might be in the stomach. But as they opened the stomach, out came James Bartley. So this man was unconscious at the time. He had some acid burns from the stomach acid in the whale's stomach on his exposed parts. Where his clothes covered him, he was not burned they put him in the captain's cabin, and he took a little while to recover, but apparently made a complete recovery. So that's kind of a more contemporary Jonah from 130-some years ago. As I said, Christ refers three times to the sign of the prophet Jonas. And in the New Testament, it's written J-O-N-A-S, but we know that this refers to Jonah. And the sign of the prophet Jonas First talked about in Matthew 12, verses 39 to 41. Let me just read those. But Christ answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Obviously, he's referring to his death, his the placement of his body in a sepulcher, and then on the third day that he rises from the dead. 
And the last verse of this section in Matthew 12 says, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. In other words, the people of Nineveh did repent, so they can attest that by the preaching of Jonah, they were willing to repent, and yet the people of Christ's generation who did not repent, when a much greater prophet than Jonah, Christ himself, the Savior and Redeemer of the world, preached to them, and they rejected that preaching, that the men and women of Nineveh will stand up and condemn them. Kind of a, a strong statement there. Now let's go back to the beginning of this part in Matthew 12, which is repeated pretty much in similar terms in Matthew 16 and also in Luke chapter 11. At the beginning here, Christ is saying, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And we've talked about this way back in the podcast, but I'm going to mention again that this does not mean that we cannot ask God for clarity or clarification and sometimes even a sign when we are trying to make sure that we are following God's will. That's different. Remember Gideon, who asked for a sign. We've studied that earlier in the Old Testament this year. And God was very patient with Gideon. He put the lamb's fleece out, and one time it's dry, and the next time it's wet. God was patient with Gideon because Gideon wanted to do the will of the Lord. Similarly, in 3 Nephi, of course, the prophet Nephi of that generation is asking for the sign to be given that will save the lives of the believers who are about to be put to death by the unbelievers if the sign doesn't come the next day. There are other times, and in early Latter-day Saint history in this dispensation, I remember reading a time when Mary Fielding Smith, who was the wife of Hiram, the brother of Joseph, asked for a sign to direct her in doing the will of the Lord. So there are many times where righteous people might ask for clarification. Now, obviously, we're not supposed to ask every time for a sign to guide us, but if we are really unsure but desirous of following the Lord's will— This is not an unrighteous thing to do, and it doesn't make us an adulterous generation. What is he talking about then? What he's talking about are people who challenge the prophets of the Lord in a faithless way, not a faithful, believing way where there's the desire to do what's right, but in a challenging way where it's like, we're not going to believe unless you give us some great sign. We've been told again and again that signs do not produce belief, that miracles come after the faith that is exhibited, not before. So faith precedes the miracle, which was the title of a book President Kimball wrote, perhaps you remember. So when he is condemning this group that is asking for a sign, recognize that they were faithless. They were challenging Christ. They were not wanting to believe. And they were just making a kind of an ultimatum. If you want us to believe, you need to give us some terrific sign. But as we know, People who receive signs very often do not follow up with faith and obedience. How many signs did Laman and Lemuel receive? And yet they continued to persecute their brother and tried to kill him when they had a chance. This is often the way we see life going. Signs do not convert people. It is the choice to believe. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. So let's just do a quick review of the story of Jonah, although it's pretty darn familiar, right? In chapter 1, Verse 2, God tells Jonah to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And in verse 3, Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
So he goes down to Joppa and he takes a ship, pays the fare, and he tries to, at the end of the verse, it says, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he thinks he can escape. Later, he's on the ship fast asleep, and a big storm arises, and the seamen are trying to figure out which God is angry at them, and they cast lots. Anyway, Jonah says it's him. The lot falls on Jonah, and he says yes, that it's him that is causing this problem. And he tells them that he's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's verse 10. And then he tells them to throw him overboard. But the men, this is kind of kind of sweet when you think about it. These Gentile seamen in verse 13 of chapter 1, it says, The men rode hard to bring it to land, to bring the ship to land. But they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. So they didn't just immediately jump up and say, like, yeah, let's throw him into the sea. They were like, okay, let's try to save his life and preserve his life. We'll try to just row really hard and get to dry land. But that's not going to happen. So they kind of beseech the Lord to not let them perish for Jonah. And eventually they toss him in the sea. And the tempest is calmed immediately. So those people who are Gentile seafaring men... Fear the Lord and offer sacrifice unto him. And in verse 17, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Again, it must have been a whale, but he's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2, he prays to the Lord, and the Lord has the fish vomit Jonah out upon dry land. In chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Go unto Nineveh and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So he does go to Nineveh, and in Verse 4, toward the end, it says, the message of Jonah is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah is surprised by the response because in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God as his word is spoken by Jonah and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest even to the least of them. And even the word goes to the king and he gets off his throne, lays his royal robes aside and covers himself with sackcloth and ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published, this is verse 7 of chapter 3, as a decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. So from the very king to the bottom of the totem pole, the people of Nineveh, repent. And they begin this fast to walk mournfully before the Lord of hosts and pray for forgiveness and to be saved from the promised destruction if they don't repent. Now, in verse 9, just a quick note, we've talked about this a few times in the past in the Old Testament because this recurs in some of the records. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Now, notice there is a footnote there in the Joseph Smith translation of that verse writes, we will repent and turn unto God, but he will turn away from us his fierce anger. In other words, the correction there is that God doesn't have need for repentance and God doesn't repent. He never does anything that is contrary to the plan, to his will, to the right path. He doesn't have to turn to the left side or the right. He always has a straight, unbending course toward righteousness and goodness. So God knew what was going to happen. He didn't have to change his plans with Nineveh. He knew that if Jonah went and preached as instructed to the people of Nineveh, that they would repent and could be spared. 
So it is the people that repent, not the Lord. And that footnote is always there. So anytime you see in the Old Testament or somewhere where it says that the Lord repents, that's not accurate. And Joseph Smith went through and really corrected all of them, as far as I'm aware. So God saw their works in verse 10, that they turned away from their evil way. So he did not destroy them. Then an interesting twist of the story of Jonah is that in chapter 4, it shows that Jonah is displeased and angry that the people of Nineveh are not destroyed. And he clearly doesn't really understand God very well. It's interesting that God will use him as an instrument anyway, but he prays to the Lord and says, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? In other words, didn't I know that you would end up sparing Nineveh? And he goes on and says, you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger. So I didn't think you were going to destroy them anyway. Why did you bother to have me in in rather a dramatic and traumatic way, have to turn my course to come back to Nineveh and tell them to repent when you didn't plan to destroy them all along. And he says in in verse 3, Therefore, now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So this is a pretty giant (laughs) response on the part of Jonah that is really out of left field. Why didn't you just leave me alone? Why did I have to come to Nineveh? You weren't going to destroy them anyway. Just kill me now because you put me through all this trauma in order to talk to Nineveh, but you weren't ever going to destroy them anyway. Now, that's not the truth, right? I mean, Jonah is totally misinterpreting the Lord. The Lord gave them an opportunity to be spared on condition of repentance. If they had not repented, they would not have been spared. Yes, he knew with his perfect foreknowledge that they would repent, But they needed to be called to repentance, and they needed to bring forth the fruit of repentance so that they could be spared. And God's, you know, great rhetorical question in verse 4 of chapter 4 says, Doest thou well to be angry? (laughs) You think that's a good idea, Jonah, to be angry at the Lord about something like this? I mean, Jonah has uh, little compassion, you know, for, for these people and just wanted to be right, I guess. So uh, what are some takeaways from the story of Jonah? Well, first, you can't hide from the Lord. I mean, how silly. Jonah thinks he's going to flee from the presence of the Lord and somehow escape the responsibility that the Lord has placed upon him. Another important lesson is that you can't interfere with the Lord's plans. The Lord wanted the people of Nineveh to be called to repentance, and he was going to make sure that they had that opportunity to repent. Jonah is clearly an imperfect instrument. This is another takeaway from the story of Jonah, that God uses imperfect instruments. Jonah really doesn't get it very well and has some pride involved here that his warning of instructions to come ended up not being necessary. So, so he's not really all that tuned in to the way God works and certainly isn't happy about the repentance of Nineveh where we know that all of heaven rejoices in one sinner that repenteth. And here is a city of many souls that repent and can avoid destruction, and he's he's upset about it. So, you know, definitely kind of twisted in his thinking. But God uses him anyway. And going back to that second takeaway, that we can't interfere with God's plan. God's plan will go forth, and it will unfold in the way that it is in, intended to unfold. God's perfect foreknowledge, his precise engineering, means that things will come to pass as he has declared. 
And he tells his prophets about this, and he uses even these imperfect instruments to direct his works and to speak for him on the planet. Now, I want to tie this in. Maybe this seems like a stretch, but it seems pretty connected to me to the thoughts that we have sometimes or that we hear about the blacks in the priesthood. Now, I have talked about this before, so forgive me if this is a repeat and you've heard it from, I think, the proclamations that we talked about at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants last year. But I do want to say that one of the prevailing thoughts is that Brigham Young and the prophets that followed him in latter-day history were prejudiced, and that they were influenced by the culture of the times to be prejudiced against Black people. And for that reason, they stopped ordaining Black men to the priesthood and didn't allow Black people to enter the temple, even if they joined the church. And this is said to have been often but because of cultural prejudice. And my question is, how on earth would God have allowed so many men to stand in the way of his plan had he intended a different timetable? God can make things happen in order to accomplish his ends. And his ends, his great end is what? The immortality and eternal life of man, Moses 139. He wants to save as many as will be saved. And he has prepared the way for that to happen. Do you really think that he would have let all those prophets stand in his way had they been blinded by cultural prejudice? He certainly didn't let Jonah get away with trying to subvert his will. Jonah takes off and he's not planning to go to Nineveh. And God sends a whale to swallow him and keep him in the belly for three days, three nights, which becomes symbolic of the death and then resurrection of Christ. Nevertheless, he turns Jonah around. Could he not have turned around Brigham Young? Did he cease to be a god of miracles? Or John Taylor, or Wilford Woodruff, or Lorenzo Snow, or any of the other prophets all the way down to President Kimball in 1978? And we spoke about this before, again, at the end of the DNC with the proclamations, that David O. McKay had petitioned the Lord. I imagine many of the other prophets as well had petitioned the Lord on this specific subject of giving the priesthood to black members, black men who joined the church. And David O. McKay was told, and he reported this in his writings, he was told not to trouble the Lord anymore concerning that subject because the time still had not come. God had a timetable. He had a plan. David O. McKay wasn't prejudiced and neither were the presidents of the church prior to that. Had they been, God could have broken through that prejudice. Are we really limiting God? Again, I refer to Peter and Paul in the New Testament, who after the resurrection of Christ are leaders in the church, Peter, the president of the church after Christ's death and resurrection, and Paul, one of the great apostles who goes to the Gentiles. And they had some discussions about how to deal with the Gentile converts. And maybe you remember that Peter thought that they should all be circumcised in the, in the old covenant, law of Moses covenant, where they where circumcision was required of all male members of the covenant people. And Paul is saying, no, that law has been fulfilled. So Peter is struggling with that. Why? Because of his culture. He had grown up in the culture of the Jews, and he's having a hard time getting past it. It's not unreasonable to say that we are affected by our culture. Peter was. 
Nevertheless, was God going to stop and say like, okay, we'll just let Peter insist that all these new Gentile convert men are going to be circumcised? No, God had a different plan and he got through to Peter. Remember, he kind of falls into a trance and he has a dream on which there's a there's an array of animals that are forbidden by the law of Moses that the Jews could not eat. And he tells, in the dream, he tells Peter to eat. And Peter's first response is, of course not, I can't eat. These things are forbidden by the law of Moses. And Peter has followed the law of Moses his entire life. And God says to Peter, what I have declared clean, don't call unclean. And this is repeated to Peter for him to break through his cultural heritage, the, the teachings of his culture, his whole life that he has followed, and realize that, oh, God has a different plan. And the Gentile men who join the church do not need to be circumcised. That law has been fulfilled in Christ. God was not stopped by Peter's culture. He got through to Peter because Peter was his prophet and God speaks to his prophets. We spoke just last week about Amos chapter 3, where he says, Surely the Lord God doeth nothing, save he revealeth his will to his servants, the prophets. God talks to his prophets. His prophets do not inhibit the work of the Lord. How could that be? God being so limited that, that people with their various cultures are not going to respond to the will of the Lord, and that the salvation of how many people might be at stake? Well, of course, the salvation of, of black people was not at stake because if people don't have a chance in this life to receive the gospel or the gospel in its fullness, every covenant, every access to the temple or the priesthood or whatever, that will all be taken care of in the spirit world. We have temples and those temples are a sign of God's love for all his children because he truly is no respecter of persons. But he does have a timetable. When Christ came to the earth, he did not teach the Gentiles. Was it because he doesn't love Gentiles? Of course not. He loves Gentiles. He loves all his children. But it was not time. So he was very careful in, in, in teaching that to his people. I've come only to the house of Israel. Then later, after his death and resurrection, it was time for the Gentiles. In the latter days, for reasons that I do kind of hypothesize about in that proclamation podcast back at the end of the DNC from 1978, when Spencer W. Kimball did receive the revelation that all worthy men now could be ordained to the priesthood. And if you're interested, go back and listen to that podcast from the end of last year. And, and I talk a little bit about what might have been a reason for God to delay the access to temples and to the priesthood for black men and for black members to the temple. So can we just think for a minute what it means when we say that it was cultural prejudice that stopped the access for black men and black members? That would mean that God can't get through to his prophets. The story of Jonah seems to contest that pretty soundly as well as the example of Peter that I gave. So I hope that we are not limiting God. I hope that we will trust that there are reasons that God does things that we will understand more completely and more fully in a time to come. And now he asks us to go forward in faith, but to not diminish 
our confidence that God speaks to his prophets. Because what's the logical next step? If God couldn't get through to Brigham Young, John Taylor, you know, Wilfred Woodruff, Lorenzo Snow, etc., all the way to Spencer W. Kimball, well, maybe, maybe God's not talking to Russell Nelson either. Or maybe Russell Nelson's prejudices. And this is something that you'll hear in the church where people say, well, you know, perhaps it's because we have a bunch of old white men that are leading the church now, and that's why, you know, gays can't get married in the temple, or we don't accept gay marriage yet. And you'll hear that that as a follow-up, that see, they maybe they got it wrong with blacks in the priesthood, and they're getting it wrong now. That's an obvious extension. So we have to go back to the root and solve the problem at the source, which is that no, God does talk to his prophets. He certainly didn't let Jonah stand in the way of his work nor would he let any of his prophets stand in the way of his work. He has said this clearly, that he will not allow a leader of the church to lead the church astray, that prior to allowing that, he would remove them from his place. And God has complete authority to do that anytime he wants and power to make it so. I hope that we don't get confused by those kinds of explanations that don't really fit the facts of Scripture. God speaks to his prophets. His prophets do not dictate to God. God tells his prophets what his will is, and they do not interfere with his plan. We can be confident in that, and I hope we are. Let's look at Micah for a few moments, and I'm going to jump right away to the last chapter of Micah, chapter 7, really the very end of the book of Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. And that certainly has relevance to Nineveh, right? I mean, another one of the important takeaways of the story of Jonah is that God is not only concerned with the salvation of the house of Israel. He loves all his children. In this case, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria was known for its barbarism. They were a very warlike and ferocious people known to impose really harsh tortures on those that they vanquished. They often would tear out the tongues of their enemies. They would skin people alive, called flaying, F-L-A-Y-I-N-G, where they, while still alive, they would remove the skin from somebody. And of course, they would die as a result of that horrible torture. Sometimes they would cut off the hands of those that they vanquished, or even all their limbs. So this was a really ferocious, fierce people, and God knew that they had the capacity to repent. So he directs and then redirects Jonah until Jonah does go and fulfill the mission that the Lord has given him to invite the people of Nineveh to repent or be destroyed, and they do repent. God loves all his children male and female, bond and free, Jew and Gentile, I mean, the house of Israel or not, the Lord loves his children. I think that's a really powerful lesson, and that's what we're reading here at the end of Micah. How great is his mercy. He delighteth in mercy. And then verse 19, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. It's a beautiful image. It reminds me of a statement made by Joseph Smith that I think is similarly beautiful about how much the Lord loves his children. He loves all of us. 
and how we ourselves should cultivate that same love for all people. We also should be no respecters of persons. There's no place for prejudice in the, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In God's kingdom, we must love all of God's children, all of our brothers and sisters. The nearer we get to our Heavenly Father, said the Prophet Joseph, the more we are disposed to look with compassion on perishing souls. We feel that we want to take them upon our shoulders and cast their sins behind our backs. If you would have God have mercy on you, have mercy on one another. I think that's beautiful. That This is a sign of our becoming more like Jesus Christ, is that as we approach God and we get closer and we understand him and his works, that we take on the same qualities as the Savior Jesus Christ. Let me read it again. Beautiful statement. The nearer we get to our Heavenly Father, the more we are disposed to look with compassion on perishing souls. We feel that we want to take them upon our shoulders and cast their sins behind our backs. If you would have God have mercy on you, have mercy on one another. You know, it's, it's important. It's important that we forgive, that we have mercy. Again, forgiveness is in the hands of the offended. Reconciliation is more on the hands of the offender meaning that we don't have to reconcile with people who are still dangerous. But if people repent and are willing to change, why would we not have mercy on them? Are we not all sinners? Do we not all require the mercy of a loving Heavenly Father and our Savior Jesus Christ in order to come into His presence again? And if we desire mercy to be extended to us, should we not likewise have mercy on others? I'm not saying that we should be victimized. Certainly that is not the will of our Heavenly Father. I've spoken about that many times, but we can have compassion on people who are in a bad place and not behaving as they should. And if we can, we can invite them into a better place and then have mercy upon them if they repent and even compassion on them if they don't, because we would rather not be in their shoes Going on, let's go back now a little bit to Micah, chapter 3. Verses 9 and 10, just quickly, he's talking to the heads of the house of Jacob and the princes of the house of Israel. And he says in, in verse 10 that some of them build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Verse 11, the heads thereof judge for reward and the priests thereof teach for hire and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? So he's condemning people who have a stewardship over the house of Israel, but only perform those stewardships for money or for personal gain. Never acceptable to the Lord. If we're doing the work of the Lord, we do it his way. And we don't profit from those things in material ways. In Micah chapter 4, the first two verses are right out of Isaiah. Same beautiful language, in the last days it shall come to pass, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up into the mountain of the Lord, 
and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I feel a little tender when I read these verses that are both in Isaiah and in in Micah here, because my parents were amongst those who came up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Back in that day of my parents, the prophets were saying for all Latter-day Saint converts and members to gather to Zion that was then, you know, Salt Lake City in Utah. And my parents came. Very specifically in response to an invitation, my mother's family came from an invitation by Heber J. Grant when he spoke in Paris. And they were members in the town of Orléans, which is about an hour south of Paris. And they they had traveled to Paris to hear him speak to the saints. And he said to gather to Utah. And it took them a long time to get there because they couldn't get visas to the United States. I mean, they had to save up a lot of money. They left France, went to Argentina. I've mentioned some of this before. And they were in Argentina for a very long time. And then eventually my mother and her sister and mother left my abusive grandfather and lost themselves in Buenos Aires so that they could be safe from him. And it took them a lot of of years of poverty as they saved every penny they could so that they could come to Zion. So it really was that beautiful, that beautiful fulfillment of prophecy, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. They didn't have a lot of contact with the church prior to being in Buenos Aires, and even then it was still pretty new times. My mother was called to be the first sister missionary in the country of Uruguay. And so the church was still growing at early stages there, but they did make it to Utah and specifically BYU, where my parents met. So really a blessing to our family that that both my mother and father came to gather to Zion. Now, let's talk a little bit of that last Last sentence, the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this specifically refers to the two capitals from which the Lord Jesus Christ will reign when he reigns during millennial years, the thousand years of the millennium. Let me read something from Joseph Fielding Smith speaking about these two capitals. Two holy cities, Zion and Jerusalem. In this great day of gathering, the Lord has commanded that those of the house of Israel who are scattered among the Gentiles, that's us, should flee unto Zion. And those who are of the house of Judah should flee unto Jerusalem, unto the mountains of the Lord's house, which is their gathering place. In each land, meaning Zion, and where is that? The new Jerusalem, right? Which is Jackson County, Missouri. In each land, a holy city shall be built. So the other land is Jerusalem in Israel, which shall be the capital from whence the law and the word of the Lord shall go forth to all peoples. Jerusalem of old, after the Jews have been cleansed and sanctified from all their sin, shall become a holy city where the Lord shall dwell, and from whence he shall send forth his word unto all people. Uh, Forgive me, that last sentence was Bruce R. McConkie who also spoke on this subject. So Jerusalem of old, after the Jews have been cleansed and sanctified from all their sins, shall become a holy city where the Lord shall dwell and from whence he shall send forth his word unto all people. Likewise, on this continent, the city of Zion, New Jerusalem, shall be built and from it the law of God shall also go forth. There will be no conflict, for each city shall be headquarters for the Redeemer of the world. 
and from each he shall send forth his proclamations as occasion may require. Jerusalem shall be the gathering place of Judah and his fellows of the house of Israel, and Zion shall be the gathering place of Ephraim and his fellows, upon whose heads shall be conferred the richer blessings, as prophesied. Going on, McConkie says, the building of these two world capitals will commence before the second coming and continue during the millennium. Then a little later, McConkie adds, Israel gathers, the new Jerusalem is built, Israel continues to gather, and the Lord comes to reign personally in the midst of his people. Then an even greater gathering takes place, which includes the restoration of the ten tribes to the lands of their inheritance, which would be in Israel. So we are coming up on these times. And again, in order to build these cities, we need to be a Zion people because the Lord will dwell therein and there can be no uncleanness that is in the presence of God. So we need to become a cleansed people. And how? Just as he said, the Jews will have to also be cleansed and sanctified from sin. We also will have to have qualified for the process of sanctification where the Holy Ghost literally purifies our bodies of the carnal elements that are a part of mortal existence. It is a more refined life and body that comes out of that sanctifying experience. And that comes when we have proven that we will serve the Lord at all hazards, that we will do what is right no matter what, not waffling around, not being selective about which commandments we choose to follow, but doing the will of the Lord, embracing his will over our own will. And the Lord, you know, gives a nice summary here in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He hath shewed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly? Well, doing justly includes being earnest in our commitment to the commandments of God. To do justly, to love mercy, as we just spoke about, the importance of being merciful. And to walk humbly with thy God. And I'll just make a quick reference to last week with Amos and Obadiah when I talked about how a big problem with liberation theology is that it does away with humility. It does not acknowledge the authority of a supreme being. It does not accept that we in this mortal life have come after the fall of Adam and Eve, which we all wanted, we all endorsed and asked them to act in our behalf so that we could come into this mortal sphere, receive a body and the body becoming the test of this life as we learn to harness the natural man and integrate in a righteous sense our body and spirit together as God himself is, a, is an exalted man with spirit and flesh. And that that process is what we desired. But because of the fall, we all have to repent. That means we need to be humble. We need to accept God's supremacy and superiority, his superior intelligence and his right to tell us what we must do in order to qualify for all that he wants to give us. And our obligation to listen and obey. And that doesn't come from liberation theology. This is the doctrine of Christ, to walk humbly before the Lord. And think how arrogant our world has become, where anybody suggests that some behavior isn't accurate or correct, and some and everybody is up in arms, it seems like, saying like, oh, you don't have a right to judge anybody. You don't have a right to tell somebody that they're doing what's wrong. Maybe that's their truth, or maybe this is my truth. 
That is the opposite of humility. We've cultivated such arrogance in our times that it's pretty simple here. The Lord says to do justly, and that does require obedience to his commandments, to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Nice summary, but loaded with meaning. And then this interesting statement, which uh, in chapter 7 of Micah, starting with verse 6, For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. That's a sobering statement. Did it remind anybody else of Matthew 10? It's very similar to the words from Matthew 10, which I will read, starting with verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth, says the Lord in Matthew 10. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Very much the same statement as in Micah, right? Going on with verse 37, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, back when we talked about the Ten Commandments, including honor thy father and mother, we spoke about how honoring our parents doesn't mean that we need to agree with everything that they believe. If we have righteous parents, we should embrace that legacy. But we may have parents that were not believers or maybe embraced different different ideas that are not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean we cannot honor them or be grateful that they gave us life and let us you know, grow to maturity but we may need to depart from them. And that's what Christ is saying. He's saying, don't think that I want you to get along with everybody. Sometimes you need not to get along with people who are trying to pull you away from the gospel path. Or if you are trying to be loyal to them, it requires you to abandon precepts of the gospel or behaviors that are required of God, of his covenant people. So the last verse of this well, I, did, I just read that. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of, of me. And we've spoken before about how important it is to love people without necessarily becoming allies to causes that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Specifically, we spoke about parents. And I realize that this is a tender subject, and our prophets have spoken of it with tenderness and compassion about parents who may have a child who embraces a gay lifestyle or a lesbian lifestyle, you know, the LGBT array, that we can and must love our children if we want to please the Lord. But that does not mean we become allies to a cause that can only take them away from the kingdom of God. And too often we see parents who, in their desire to support their children, are ready to abandon principles of the gospel. And they do become so-called allies, to causes that are not consistent with the doctrines of the kingdom. And that is not God's way. Christ is saying, in situations like that, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Because sometimes you might have to be set against people that you love in order to not offend Jesus Christ. Remember that admonition that we must not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And if we are ready to abandon it because we are trying to be loyal to a person in our family or anybody else, we're making a mistake. 
These are times when Christ says, sometimes you must separate from these people. And if you love them more than you love me, you're doing it wrong. You're not worthy of me or my kingdom. Now, I have a story about this that is so touching to me. I heard this many years ago. I'd have to go back and count, but it was a long time ago. Chris and I were invited by a couple that we were friends with that were living in Port Antonio, Jamaica for a while and serving there in the ward. And they invited us to come and join them. So we did. We went and spent a week in Port Antonio, Jamaica. It was a wonderful time. They were great. They showed us around and we had some great adventures there. It's a, it's a beautiful island. We went to church with them on Sunday in the local ward and we actually taught lessons and spoken sacrament meeting at that local ward. And then our friends had set up for us to do a fireside in Kingston, Jamaica, the night before we flew back home. So we drove from Port Antonio with them to Kingston, which was the center of the stake. And then we did a fireside the night before we left. It was great to have that opportunity to speak to some of the saints there of the Kingston stake in Jamaica. And that night, the Stake Relief Society president, whose name was Patricia, invited us to stay with her in her home, and then she would get us to the airport the next morning. Now, that was a wonderful blessing, and I'll never forget that Patricia had this enormous grapefruit tree in her backyard. It was an enormous tree. And she told me that this tree just produced so much fruit that she would open it up to anybody to come with their boxes or bags, and, and it just kept bearing so much fruit that they could just haul off tons of grapefruit. And the next morning, we had some for breakfast, and I have never had grapefruit before that I didn't want to put some sweetener on prior to that time. Actually, I'm pretty good with even the tart grapefruit these days, but back then, I would have normally put some honey or sugar on it, and this was the sweetest grapefruit ever. Anyway, small detail, but a great memory. Patricia and I didn't get much sleep the night before Chris and I went back home because she was so wonderful to talk to, and we stayed up most of the night <laughs> sharing our love for the gospel and exchanging some of our personal experiences and stories. And Patricia told me a story that fits so well with this verse from Micah and from Matthew 10. She was married to a man who was an engineer and had a very good job, and they had a lovely home in Kingston. This was not common. A lot of the people, and this was a long time ago, I don't know exactly how it is now, but I don't imagine it's better. But she told me that very many people, and our friends had told us this too, that very many people in, in Jamaica don't get a chance to marry, that there are many men who don't really settle down and get jobs and are not willing to take on the obligation of marriage and to have, have a family. And this is a real tragedy for women in Jamaica who want to marry and have children. And they can get away with it because there's so much fruit and, you know, plenty that grows there in that kind of tropical climate. So they can basically just, you know, eat off the trees. So sometimes they just avoid the responsibility of a job and a family. At any rate, Patricia was married to a good man who had a great education and a good solid job. She had a lovely home with children. She was active in the church, but her husband was not a member and he did not like the church because this was prior to 1978 before the revelation that black men, all men who were worthy, could have access to the priesthood and be ordained into the priesthood of God. And that really bothered him. And we understand that, right? This constituted quite a test for black people at that time, and even for white people who might have used it as an excuse for prejudice, which is never okay with God. But at any rate, 
He didn't want to join the church. And at some point, he became really angry that she was a faithful member. And he told her, gave her a complete ultimatum, that if she did not stop going to church and abandon her faith, that he would divorce her. And again, I don't think I can fully explain how precious it was for her to be married to a man with a good job who could support the family. So this this was this terrible ultimatum. And she told me that she pretty much stayed up all night in a fasting state and praying to the Lord to help her. And in the morning, she knew that she had to remain faithful. She loved Christ even more than her precious husband and her marriage. And she would not turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ, not even for such a prize. So she told her husband that the next morning. He was not happy. But before anything could really happen to end their marriage, he became very ill to the point where they had to go to doctors and eventually to the hospital. And they did all kinds of tests, but they could not find out what was wrong with her husband. And they finally sent him home to to just die at home because they could do nothing more for him. But clearly his life was ebbing away. At that point, he went even to some of the local voodoo artists and witch doctors in that area. The island has many. And he asked them to help him, and none of them could help him, and they all agreed that he was dying. Finally, at the end of his rope, Patricia's husband said, send for the elders to give me a blessing, which she did. And the elders came and anointed and sealed the anointing with a blessing through the power of the priesthood, that her husband would regain his health, and he did. He joined the church. It was, it was truly a miracle. But Patricia had been willing to give up her marriage for her loyalty to Christ above all else. Now, since that time, brothers and sisters, I have heard stories of people who whose spouses declared that they would divorce them if they remained active and followed through with that threat. And marriages have ended because of one party's determination to serve the Lord and to not turn back away from their commitments and their covenants to the Lord. These are, these are tough sacrifices, and our heart goes out to anybody who is in that terrible quandary. Nevertheless, the Lord is telling us without equivocation that he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And of course, that includes husband or wife. Those are rare circumstances, brothers and sisters, but they do happen. And more and more in a divided world. But let us never yield to another competing loyalty it all goes on the altar. If we love the Lord, we, we put everything else on the altar. And that is what is required of the people of the Lord. And out of that comes great power, great faith, and ultimately sanctifying power that prepares us for the presence of the Lord. What could be more worthwhile than that? Last point that I want to make is a little detail that Micah alone shares with us in a prophecy of Jesus Christ. From Micah chapter 5, we have this statement in verse 2. 
But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This is the place in Scripture where it tells us that Christ would be born in Bethlehem, in humble little Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, of course, that is recounted in the New Testament, and we have further information in Matthew, who explains that in his book, which is written to Jews, he says that Christ is born in Bethlehem. And Luke also explains the reason in the classic scriptures that we often read at Christmas time, which is fast approaching, that all the world was going to be taxed. And so every person had to go back to the city of their origin. And that meant that Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem because he was of the house of David, as was Mary. So they go back to Bethlehem for that reason. And that's why the baby Christ child is born in Bethlehem. And Yet through the rest of the New Testament, it is often said that Christ came out of Galilee because after Joseph and Mary flee out of Herod's arena of power to Egypt in order to save the life of the Christ child, when they come back, they go to Nazareth. And so Christ grows up in Nazareth and is sometimes referred to as a Nazarene, and that is a place in Galilee. So it is often referenced in the New Testament that Christ came out of Galilee. Remember that when Philip goes to Nathanael, his friend, who is a good man, and says, come and see Christ, Nathanael's kind of quick response is, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? (laughs) And that's recorded in John chapter 1. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And then when Nathanael comes with Philip, because Philip again says, come and see, Christ sees Nathanael coming and says, look, there's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. So Nathanael was a good person, but he saw Christ as being out of Nazareth. So what is my point with this? Why do I think this is important? Well, I think it's important because I think it's interesting that here Micah makes this specific revelation and prophecy that Christ will be born in Bethlehem. And sure enough, as testified by the early apostles who write those gospels, he was born in Bethlehem. But most people didn't know that. He would have been very young still when they had to flee into Egypt, and then they returned to Nazareth. So people didn't know. They thought he was a Nazarene. And so those who knew of this Old Testament prophecy could have been misled, right? They could have said, well, that can't be. That can't be the Savior because he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and, you know, this Jesus is from Nazareth. Now, I think that's interesting. I think that God deliberately dots his I's and crosses his T's. He is the perfect engineer. He is in the details. When he makes a prophecy, it is fulfilled. But he allows some of these details to be temporarily obscured in order to test us. Because there are some people who get hung up about things that we have not yet had revealed. And they allow those things to be stumbling blocks. And they land on them as if, see, here is a reason not to believe. People who listened to Christ in New Testament times could have said, well, I'm not going to believe because I don't think he was born in Bethlehem. And yet that didn't stop 
those with a pure heart, those who did not have guile, those who listened and knew he was the Son of God and had felt the witness of the Spirit that this indeed was the Christ. And maybe it wasn't until later that they found out that little detail that, yes, sure enough, he was born in Bethlehem. But even before knowing that, they did not allow it to get in the way. Would we have let that be a stumbling block to us? Look how many things we allow to be stumbling blocks or other people around us allow to be stumbling blocks. Joseph Smith was a gold digger prior to having the revelation in the, in the sacred grove. Or, or me, even after, even after he was actually, you know, hunting with others for buried treasure. And so because of that, you know, I'm not going to believe that through the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, he translated a sacred record that was delivered to him by the prophet Moroni. Like people let these things get in the way. Or well, here's one, and I heard this again just not that long ago from somebody whose faith has faltered, saying that, well, you know, the archaeology of the Book of Mormon doesn't fit. For instance, there seems to be no evidence that there were horses in this continent prior to the coming of the Spaniards, the conquistadores, with their horses. And so the Book of Mormon can't be true. Well, <laughs> so this reminded me of something I thought was kind of quirky that happened when my husband and I were helping our daughter Eden move back to Provo to start her MBA. She had been living for a while with us in Draper while she worked up here. And she rented a U-Haul and we helped her pack it up, and her dad drove it down, and then Eden and I came, leaving a little bit later with, you know, some of her other things in the car, and it's funny, because this U-Haul was in front of our house all day as we were loading it up, and I had never read the side of the U-Haul van. You know, they have things on there, little stories or something like that, and I hadn't really even looked. We were so busy packing up, but when we were driving down to Provo, Chris had left a little before we had, but because he was going a little slower in that truck... We caught up with him, and we pulled up right next to him at a at a red light. <laughs> and I finally looked over at the van, and I read the side of the van, and this is what it said. It had kind of a zebra-type animal pictured there, and it said, the Hagerman horse grazed Idaho's savanna over three million years ago. Fossils indicate this species continued to evolve until 10,000 years ago, then suddenly vanished. America's first horse. <laughs> so anyway, I just pointed that out to Eden and I took a picture of it. I had to look back on my phone and sure enough, there it was. It said that, that they have discovered fossils which show that there were some kind of horse animal in the Americas. Now, when they say things like three million years, I don't let those details bother me because you know what? It's an all an imperfect science. Have we not learned that science is a moving target and it's just the latest hypothesis? So when it comes to timing things and whatever, I'm not too worried about that stuff. But at any rate, I just thought, look at that. Look at that. If you wait long enough, <laughs> you know, the wheel turns and there is more evidence of what the Lord has said. And yet how many people have died on that mountain and said, well, since there are no, you know, artifacts of horses in this country, and the Book of Mormon talks about there being horses, then it must not be true. And I think this is the same issue, that the Lord deliberately, deliberately allows some details of prophecy or of the details of the gospel to be obscured as a test of our faith. Do we have sense enough to feel the Spirit, to seek the Spirit, and to and to not be foolish, to certainly study things out in our mind, and there is plenty of, of wonderful principle in the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes such great sense, that is so logical. And yes, the Lord does reveal himself enough that to the believer, we have evidence enough. 
And yet God is clearly interested in our development of faith. Faith is the first principle. And as I have said before, my husband reminded me that faith is also the last because by faith, the worlds were created. We need to go from our small faith to great faith, the kind of faith that can move mountains, the kind of faith that can create worlds. And how does that happen if everything is revealed to us? If God wanted to prove it, he could put the golden plates in the church museum, but clearly that is not his desire at this time. He wants us to move forward in faith, believing when we don't see everything yet. It will all be revealed. And this reminds me of a wonderful statement from Neil Maxwell that I quoted just a few weeks ago, and I'm going to quote again today from his speech in November 1974 called, Why Not Now? Elder Maxwell said, and if you sense that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, why not do so now? For in the coming of that collective confession, it will mean much less to kneel down when it is no longer possible to stand up. Brothers and sisters, why not now? Why not erase those stumbling blocks and believe Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Why not believe now and trust that all things will be revealed? Trust that this great God who gives us a gospel that makes us better people, that makes us a better version of ourselves, that all the I's will be dotted and all the T's will be crossed in a coming day. Why not believe now? We can choose glory now. We can become a Zion people now. Why not now? Brothers and sisters, I want to thank again those of you who are subscribing on Patreon. That is supporting this podcast. If you have a desire to do that, please go to patreon.com forward slash choosing glory and you can subscribe. Also, I want to let you know that my book, Choosing Glory, also the same name as the podcast, is available on the website lilyanderson.com, L-I-L-I, Anderson is S-O-N.com. And if you'd like to buy somebody a copy for Christmas or get a copy for yourself, it makes a great gift. So you can buy that copy on my website, lilyanderson.com. That has just gone live recently. We're still tweaking some of the parts, but it's working if you'd like to buy a copy of the book. And thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.